a Podcast One production. One of the things I think a lot of us would like to do in our time on this planet is is make the world in some small way a better place. Bring a bit of love, a bit of happiness to those around us. Maybe even improve the lives of those we don't know. Well, imagine if your work changed the lives of those you've never met. Imagine if your work saved lives. Imagine if you could, if your life's work will save millions of lives. It's a scenario that I can barely get my head around, but it's an apt description of the career of our guest today on The Big Questions, Professor Ian Fraser. Ian was part of the team that investigated, designed and created the Gardasil vaccine. It guards against the human papillomavirus or HPV. Fraser's work may well see cervical cancer gone forever within a couple of generations. And in doing so, people have rightly said he will have saved millions of lives. I wanted to know more about this remarkably modest man and the work that led him to this incredible breakthrough. So I asked the big question, what's it like to save millions of lives to Professor Ian Fraser? Big questions. Ian Fraser, how are you? So welcome to the big questions. Uh, thank you, Adam. It's good to be with you. Um, in fact, it's Ian Hector Fraser. I found out your middle name. Yes, not too many people know that. Well, it's an interesting one because, as I think will become apparent from our uh, conversation, you're one of the least hectoring people I've I've ever known. But take us back to tell tell us about your mum and dad who came up with this, as it turns out, possibly not so appropriate middle name. Look, the the Hector came from my grandfather, who was Hector Shepherd, my mother's father. Uh, why my parents chose that particular middle name for me, I have no idea. But uh, they were uh, obviously. Uh, wanting to acknowledge the fact that uh, there was a family there and that the family name should be carried forward. And that these parents were both research scientists, Jess. Tell us a bit about how they spent their lives. Yeah, my father was a doctor, but he went into medical research at a fairly early stage and uh, his interest was particularly in biochemistry, which was called chemical pathology in those days. And he got involved in basically setting up the kidney transplant program uh, in Edinburgh in Scotland. My mother was a basic scientist, she was a physiologist and she was interested in nerve function and she uh, spent quite a lot of her time working on the problems that uh, develop in nerves in patients with diabetes. I remember reading that you were drawn to science from a young age. How did that manifest itself? Was it the traditional sort of magnifying glass on ants or making up little explosives for off in the local park or how did science manifest itself in the curious mind of a young Ian Fraser? Well, I was given a chemistry set when I was about nine years old. And uh, uh, in those days, they put things in chemistry sets which you wouldn't be allowed to put in these days. Uh, <laughs> the general idea was you mixed everything together to see if it would go bang. <laughs> so I was always a bit curious about how things worked. I liked to take things to bits, never could really put them back together again, but that didn't matter. At least you tried to find out how they were working. And, and I read that at a young age, you were, you were drawn to, to physics as much as medicine or biology and we'll see soon that your, your, your career has definitely gone down another path is there any time in life when you've looked jealously at the people at the large hadron collider and thought wow maybe if i was doing physics i'd be discovering you know new fundamental particles or getting an insight into the birth of the universe 
Well, I was certainly interested in astrophysics, and uh, I still am, but uh, uh, perhaps not so much these days as a, as, a, as a job, but rather as a hobby. I still read the astrophysics papers in, in Nature each, each week when it comes out, and I'm going off to see the total eclipse of the sun in uh, Wyoming next week. So you're not just a career nerd, you're a, you're a casual nerd as well. Yeah, I guess that's right. But I, look, I made a decision when I was about uh, 16 years old as a result of a conversation with a, cl a clinician that perhaps it would be more interesting to look inside the body than out into outer mm. space. And even if it wasn't more interesting, it was more practical. Were you always focused on research or did the idea of being a surgeon or a, a general practitioner, doctor, health professional as well appeal to you? When did you decide that research was where you wanted to be? Oh, look, as soon as I was into went to med school, I was fairly clear that I would end up sometime doing research. But I actually got quite sidetracked into clinical work for the first uh, few years. And I, I enjoyed my opportunity to be a full-time doctor for the first five years after I graduated. And, and, and it's interesting because in the early 1980s, and this was a very formative moment in your life, I think, you were headhunted by a research institute in Australia. And I think it's interesting for some of my listeners, they would know that headhunting happen, happens, you know, amongst your favourite football teams or occasionally in the in a corporate boardroom scenario, but headhunting happens in the world of science just as much, doesn't it? How were you headhunted, Ian? Well, look, I went out to Australia, first of all, in 1974 as, a, as an undergraduate student and went and worked uh, in the Royal Melbourne Hospital uh, just as a summer job for three months, and I helped one of the researchers there do their research work. During the course of that visit, I met several people within the Hall Institute and uh, uh, one of them, Professor Ian Mackay, uh, did say to me when I left that it would be nice if I could come back sometime. I never really thought much more about that and about, until about seven years later when I came back from a holiday and found there was a telegram on the doormat. And the telegram basically uh, in the current Australian Parliament said, where the bloody hell are you? And he was kind of expecting me to have turned up and I hadn't. So I, I, I had to make a decision pretty quickly about that and with, in conversation with my wife we decided a couple of years in Australia might be a good idea and we're still here. But back back in the early 1980s you could have made an argument especially in terms of world science that Australia was physically fairly remote. Was there a risk that you were going to a bit of the you know, the boondocks in some way? Oh no I don't think that was the case rather it was the other way around when I was an undergraduate and studying immunology uh, almost all the papers that were really important that I read came from the Walter and Liza Hall Institute. Mm. <laughs> so it was at that, at that time the centre of the immunological universe, if not the uh, astrophysics one. And uh, I really wanted to be a part of that and see what all these very smart people were actually doing and how it worked in practice. Yeah, it, it's an amazing institute. It, it's, it's called WEHI by those in the North. No, the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. It's been associated with amazing Australians like you know, Sir Gustav Nossel. Tell, tell us what, for, for our outsiders, what is WEHI and why is it so respected in the world? Well, look, it was set up as an institute of medical research back in the early 20th century uh, and it gave rise to Mac Burnett uh, and his work on virology, which in turn really was the founding of true modern immunology because it was understanding how the body dealt with viruses that gave us a real clue as to how the immune system actually worked to protect us against infection. And he established a group of people round about him 
who, like Gus Nossel and Jacques Muller, made a serious difference to the whole science of immunology, working out all the cellular basis of how we defend ourselves against infection. And at that time, it was the preeminent research institute within Australia. Now, of course, we have several, but in those days, it was uh, it stood out from all the other ones. And uh, that was where the breakthroughs came, and it spawned off a whole generation of scientists working not just in immunology, but in the practical applications of immunology to health. And, and that was where you started looking at, at HIV and, and, and HPV, and this is where a lot of your most recognised work has come, the, the HPV, the, the human papillomavirus. Or, um, what is HPV? Well, it's what are HPVs because we have a, we know of at least two hundred different ones now. Wow! Some of them cause warts. Uh, some of them we get infected with and we don't even know we've got them. But about ten of them can promote cancer, particularly in the cervix, but in other parts of the body as well. Uh, these are funny viruses because most viruses uh, go through a life cycle where eventually they kill the cells they infect. But papillomaviruses don't kill the cell they infect. Rather, they actually make them live longer. They immortalize them, if you like. But unfortunately, that also sets them up to the cells that are infected to become cancer cells. And is that what's unique or different about HPV that makes it potentially so important and so dangerous for us to understand? Well, it was the first virus that was shown to cause a cancer in humans when Harold Sirhausen did his work in that area back in the 1980s. And we recognize there are a couple of other viruses that use the same trick, that they can copy themselves and make more viruses without having to kill the cell they infect. Most of the viruses that do that, unfortunately, also promote cancers. Gardasil, or as I like to call it, recombinant human papillomavirus vaccine types 6, 11, 16 and 18... <laughs> tell, tell us what 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 is Gardasil, and then I want to bring out the story of how we how you not we discovered it. Well, Gardasil is a vaccine designed to protect against the papillomaviruses that cause cervical cancer, and we now, of course, have Gardasil nine, which has nine different viruses in it. Mm. So you have to remember a few more numbers beyond six, eleven, sixteen, and eighteen. But uh, the the general idea is that these vaccines, given before you are exposed to the infection, protect you against the infection, which can go on to cause cancer in the future. Well, where did the idea for a vaccine come from? The discovery by Harold Zerhausen that there was a virus that caused cancer in humans uh, led a lot of people to get very interested in how that virus worked as a virus. Now, the problem with the virus was that you couldn't grow it in the lab. Uh, most viruses you can grow quite satisfactorily in the lab, just put the virus onto some cells and you get more virus coming out. But you couldn't do that with papillomavirus. And so I wanted to understand a bit more how the body fights papillomavirus and my colleague Chan Zhu wanted to understand a bit more how the virus actually caused cancer and we got together in Cambridge to work on the virus and we wanted to make a whole virus because of course if you couldn't grow the virus the alternative would be to try and build one so in, in building the virus we actually ended up building the shell of the virus first the skin of the virus which is the non-infectious bit if you like and when we actually first made the skin of the virus we built the building blocks and they assembled themselves into the virus shell. And that self-assembly said to us immediately, this could be a vaccine against the virus. And, and this is a really important point to dwell on. You, you did not start with your colleague, Jean, saying, let's create a vaccine. You, you started trying to understand something about the inherent nature of HPV itself. And when you got down that path, a sufficient distance 
you had the skill to parlay that into, wow, hold it, if we know this about HPV, maybe that could lead to a vaccine. And that's a very important distinction to just going for a vaccine right from the get-go, isn't it? Yes, we have to be quite clear. We did not set out to find a vaccine against HPV. We set out to understand the virus. That's often the way in science is that you, you, you have to get the basic bits right before you can even start to think about the applied and translational bits. You told us about when you saw the, the shell self-assembling. Was that a, you know, what we, we outsiders tend to, you know, sometimes patronisingly call a, a eureka moment? Is there one moment when you were looking at something and you realised wow or was it just a really slow accumulation of information and knowledge over an extended period of time eh? look it was there was a eureka moment because we had been struggling to try and build the shell of the virus for a for a whole year uh using different technologies to try and get the various building blocks to assemble themselves into something that looked the vir- like the virus and every time we would do this, we would collect the material from the experiment, send it off to the electron microscope to get photographed, and we'd get back a photograph of rubbish. Mm-hmm. And then one time we sent off all the bits and pieces, and in amongst all the rubbish, we could see the shell of the virus, several copies of it. We said, aha, we've got there. And we didn't really think straight away, well, and that will be a vaccine. But within a couple of days, we were realizing that there was a potential for that. What's it like that moment? Do you do you and your colleague realise at that moment you are the there's a piece of knowledge there and you are the first people in human history to possess that piece of knowledge? Well, I have to say we kind of hoped we were the first people to do it. The trouble with science is you never know whether you really are going to be first or not. But uh, the, the way we were going about it was different from the way that most people had been going about working with the virus up to that time. We were using new technologies which probably weren't widely available and therefore we had a fairly good chance that we might have been the first. Certainly, time has shown that we probably were. But at that time, of course, we had no way of knowing that. And, and it's fascinating. We're, we're talking 1991 here. Now, we, we now live in a world where Gardasil is, is a reality and millions of people are receiving the vaccine. But it, it, it doesn't happen instantly in 1991, does it? There's a road of, it, it's, is it from March 1991 when you complete those shells through to 2006 before you're getting approval in the United States? What is that torturous road like and what does it involve, Ian? Well, Obviously, when we first had the concept that there might be a vaccine, uh, we wanted to check at least in principle that it would work the way we expected. So we immunized animals with it and showed that they made antibodies which bound to the virus, which would be the basic characteristic of any vaccine. Uh, The next step after that was to start thinking, well, if this is going to be a vaccine, we're going to need to partner uh, with industry and because we can't make vaccines on a scale that would be useful for the rest of the world. Mm. Uh, And then we realised, well, if we're going to partner with industry, we'd probably better protect our intellectual property. And so we took out a patent to protect it because we know that companies aren't particularly interested in science that somebody else can copy freely because they're then then in a race. While we might have spent a few dollars to end up with the potential for a vaccine, they would have to spend millions of dollars to end up to see if the vaccine would work. Once we'd done that, but we went and talked with the companies, picked CSL as a first partner, and they in turn picked Merck and GSK to work with overseas. And of course, those companies then had to develop a way of making a swimming pool full of the vaccine rather than just a, a test tube full so that they could be made in trial. And that, of course, was very hard work for them and took several years. That led in turn to the 
clinical trials that eventually showed that the vaccine works. And, and we get to the point where, is it true that you administered the first dose of the vaccine? The first uh, dose of the vaccine after it had been licensed, yes. There were clinical trials before mm. that, and I wasn't for very good reason involved with those. But as soon as we had the vaccine licensed, I gave the first dose to the daughter of one of my colleagues in the lab. What, what, what did that moment represent for you? Well, that made it real for the first time. Mm. You know, it was no longer science. It wasn't experimental. It was actually a product. And the whole business of there being a vaccine that was now going to become available worldwide was brought home, especially because there was a, a fair bit of media coverage for that event. And suddenly you realise this wasn't just me in a lab now with my colleagues. This was mm. us out there in the real world. But we have to acknowledge it wasn't entirely one-way traffic. I mean, there were some people that that sort of created ethical issues. You're, you're, you're giving a vaccine for a, an illness that's sexually transmitted and you're giving it to girls in their early teenage years. Some people have trouble with that because you're raising the issue with girls that one day you're going to have sex and you're having this vaccine. So that, But was, was it a storm of controversy? Am I overstating it? There was certainly some people had ethical problems with entering this sort of realm, didn't they? Yeah, there were a couple of people spoke out against it fairly passionately publicly. I remember Tony Abbott mentioned something about that. Uh, he changed his mind after thought, and I think that was probably what most people have done. I mean, nobody thinks that a vaccine actually causes sexual promiscuity or even sexual activity. It's just a, it's a way of protecting yourself. But perhaps in retrospect, we should have said this was a vaccine against cervical cancer rather than a vaccine against a virus, which uh, through passed through sexual intercourse because it's cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's now, am I correct, it's been approved in well more than 100 countries. What stage are we at worldwide with Gardasil and has it been long enough now to start seeing significant results? Look, every country in the world that has a process for approving vaccines has now approved it, China being the most recent and last one. Uh, the vaccine is being used extensively in the developed world, which is good, but it's not being used nearly extensively enough in the developing world where cervical cancer is a big problem. Most of the 270,000 deaths from cervical cancer every year that we know about occur in the developing world, and very few of the developing world countries as yet have taken up the vaccine. So that's the big challenge for the future now, but demonstration projects in many small small developing world countries have shown that we can vaccinate there. It's just simply a matter of resources. A, a colleague of yours told me that you have actually been out at the coal place administering the vaccine or seeing it administered, you know, well away from the lab. Where are some of the places in the world where you've seen Gardasil rolled out firsthand? Well, we've been particularly keen to try and do something in our near neighbour Pacific Islands and we picked Vanuatu. I worked with a colleague of mine there, a general practitioner who uh, spends quite a bit of time in Vanuatu and we started a project back there in 2009 and that's ongoing now and we're finding all of the problems that everybody finds when we're trying to get programs initiated in the developing world mm. but we've also been very successfully uh, to Bhutan where my colleagues have, have launched a program there there the difference was we had royal sponsorship the royal grandmother in Bhutan was determined that her oh. uh, children should be protected against this virus and therefore, with royal sponsorship, almost anything is possible. Indeed, so much is possible. Let's find out exactly how much in just a few moments with Professor Ian Fraser. You're listening to The Big Questions with me, Adam Spencer, and my guest today is Professor Ian Fraser, a man whose work in discovering the HPV vaccine Gardasil has been said will save tens of millions 
of lives. Professor, you've mentioned that figure already of over a quarter million people a year. When you feel that rolled out to saving tens of millions of lives, how does that sit with you? Well, to the extent that the, the vaccine will save tens of millions of lives, yes. I mean, look, it was a team effort. Uh, we relied on the work that Harold Sirhausen had done before us to demonstrate that the virus caused cervical cancer. We also relied on the technologies that we, um, if you like, borrowed from colleagues that enabled us to build the, the, the first virus shell. And in turn, we relied on the companies that now make the vaccine. So it was a huge team effort to get that vaccine out there. But yes, it's great to know that the, the work that we initiated has got to the stage now where we can seriously contemplate getting rid of cervical cancer on a global basis. Now, I knew you were going to say that, Ian. I have done my homework, and I did speak to a colleague of yours who said one of your great characteristics is the humility with which you you know talk about others being involved as well. He put it in a beautifully Australian way. He said, you know how when you see after a grand final the captain of the team saying, couldn't have done it without the team, or when someone wins best actor, they say, couldn't have done it without my fellow castmates. He said, Ian Fraser can do that sort of bullshit as well as anyone. But he's amazing for the work he did himself. But it was a collaborative effort. And, and can I ask particularly about, about Shan Zhu, your, your, your colleague in those early days, an amazing man. I've heard you speak about him before. Tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, Jan was an ideal partner for the work we were doing together. We met in Cambridge in England. He was a Chinese visiting scholar in a lab in Cambridge. And I was an Australian visiting scholar in the lab in Cambridge. And we both had a little bit of a problem with the English language, me being Scottish and him being... Uh, so we got together a bit in the corner and talked about papillomavirus, which we shared as a common interest. And uh, at that time, we weren't thinking vaccine, we were thinking virus and how does this virus work? But uh, we, Jan agreed to come back and work in my lab in Australia when he'd finished his sabbatical in Cambridge. And he and I and his wife also contributed to Sun very much. The, the three of us worked on this project of building the virus. By the way, we eventually did make an infectious papillomavirus in the lab out of the building box. That was two years after we got to the stage where we had the shell of the virus, which was the bit that became the vaccine. And, and, and a tragic part of the story is Jean dies in his early 40s. And, and, and did he die of hepatitis, which he had contracted as a youngster? There's, there's a horrible irony in all that. And it, it's, it, it's, it's also so sad, isn't it? Well, he never lived to see the uh, vaccine actually demonstrated effective, mm. which I feel very sad about, and obviously it must be terrible for his family to have to contemplate that. Uh, uh, it was a very difficult time for us in the lab, too. He was he had been life and soul of the lab and had gone back to China uh, because he wanted to visit family there, and uh, he left looking well and died while he was there. Can I ask you, Ian... Um other people do speak about your prodigious work rate. You, you're the president of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences. You helped establish that. Part of its role is to take part in public discussions and advocate for science. On the topic of vaccination and anti-vaccination, when, when you hear people putting you know, the anti-vaxxers, as they're called, do you, do you respect an anti-vaxxer's right to free speech? Do you hope to educate them? Do they make you angry? Do they make you sad? How does the issue resonate with you? Oh, I, th I get a bit frustrated, I have to say, because it's it, the, the more passionate speakers against vaccine make use of false evidence to try and persuade people that vaccines are dangerous. 
I don't really understand why they do it. I, under, I fully understand their right to say what they want publicly, but if they then try to use science to back up something when the science is pseudoscience, that gets me really frustrated. Uh, as a scientist, you have to believe in the quality of evidence. I think the thing that really frustrates me is that they manage to persuade other people who are perhaps one way or the other about vaccination that maybe they shouldn't get their kids vaccinated. And then we get the problems that we've had recently with the case of uh, diphtheria in Queensland and mm -hmm. cases of measles across in West Australia, avoidable disease. And yes, uh, the problem is a real one if people don't get their kids vaccinated and they don't know whether their children are going to go off to the developing world where these infections are still common and they don't know whether they're going to be in a situation where they're going to be at risk of their lives from these infections. Can I put a topic, another topic too that I could imagine might frustrate you a little bit? In more general public health and societal health, we spend so much money on prevention of chronic diseases in Australia like diabetes, etc., where really as far as my limited understanding goes, with a lot of the issues we face in public health in Australia, if people took a threefold strategy of give up the cigarettes, lay off the piss, and walk up the stairs at work, we would make massive headway in some of these areas that otherwise costs hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to try and repair down the track. Am, am I right in putting it as simply as that? And if so, is that frustrating? Well, it is right. Uh, perhaps we've been slow to recognise just how much of an impact our what we do to ourselves has on how we turn out in the long run. It's difficult to persuade people that they should be behaving in their 20s for how they want to work in their 70s. Uh, but uh, we do need to work hard on that and make sure that people understand that there are consequences for everything we do to ourselves. We don't want to be spoil sports and say, look, you can't do anything that you enjoy. Uh, I'm sure we all enjoy a drink from time to time, but uh, cigarettes are bad news all round and keeping your body weight right certainly improves your chances of a long and healthy life. And most people aren't so much interested in whether they live a long life as whether they live a healthy life. And then if they really want a healthy life, then looking after themselves from the age of well, whenever you're born, basically, is really important. On the topic of looking after yourself, so we, we administer Gardasil to, to girls and young women in those sort of mid-teenage years, if someone listening to this now is 42 and does not have uh, HPV as far as they know, can they and should they get the vaccine? Well, can they? The answer is yes. Uh, the vaccine works at all ages to protect you against the papillomavirus infections you've not yet had. But of course, mostly these viruses are spread through sexual intercourse and the commonest time to get them is when you're young. And therefore, the chances of you actually picking up a new papillomavirus infection at the age of 40 is pretty small. Mm. The best protection for a 40-year-old against cervical cancer is the pap smear program, which is now changing to look specifically for the virus rather than just looking for the, dam the damaged cells that the virus produces. And that pap smear program is really effective against cervical cancer. Should our listeners get their sons vaccinated in their early teenage years? Absolutely. The program is available for both boys and girls and has been for three years now. And uh, boys can get cancer from these viruses as well. And obviously not cervical cancer. We don't have a cervix as a male, but uh, other sites in the body are also prone to the virus. Quite a number of famous people have had cancer inside their mouth. And even one or two of them have admitted that they got it through sexual intercourse. Mm. These viruses can cause cancer there. Can, can I ask you about this virus that you've spent so much of your life examining, wrestling with, trying to defeat. You, you gave us an insight into the, the aspect of it, the way it can immortalise cells, etc. This might be a weird question, but do you 
do you respect the virus? Do you do you look at it as a thing of beauty in some ways? Do you hate it? Do you have any emotional connection with this other living thing? Well, no, I can't really say I do. It's First of all, it's not living. It, mm-hmm. It's just a bit of crystal and a bit of protein. Uh, it's not even as living as a bug is. A bacterium lives and goes off and does whatever bacteria do. But the virus is just inert. It can't do anything unless it gets inside us. Uh, and therefore, it really isn't alive in any strict sense of the word. It's just bad news wrapped up in a protein coat, to quote another scientist. But its ability, what it does, is it, it sounds special in some ways. Yeah, well, it's special in that, that it causes cancer in humans, and that's pretty nasty. Mm. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it doesn't really have any sort of life of its own. I, I, I see it as a challenge. I saw it as a challenge, and that was why I was interested in it, because this was the first virus that caused cancer in humans. Now, of course, we recognize there are a few others, and we need, they are still challenges, some of them. So we need to get on and get rid of them. There are no good stories come out of viruses, only bad news. You advise the Gates Foundation on aspects of immunology and Gardasil and the like. What, what are Bill and Melinda like to deal with? Well, look, Bill Gates Sr. was very receptive and interested in the whole business. Uh, and Bill Gates Jr. and his wife, Melinda, were obviously very interested in seeing whether their money would be useful in getting this vaccine out into the developing world. But I think they f- quite rightly felt that the first challenge was to make sure that the companies that were making the vaccine had programs which would make it available for as a, at a reasonable cost in the developing world. And that, of course, is what the companies have done. We pay a lot for the vaccine so that we can pay for the costs of developing the vaccine. The, people, the developing world countries just pay for the manufacture and distribution costs. You're doing a million and one different things at the moment, but in terms of your research, Ian, is there another great immunological challenge you're focusing on? Is there another virus in your sites that should be worried, should be, wake, not the viruses wake up, but waking up in a cold sweat at night because Professor Ian Fraser is coming after it? Uh, well, we, we're trying for a vaccine against herpes at the moment. Uh, that's a difficult challenge. And we're, but, but we're actually mostly focused at the moment on skin cancer because I, this is a very common disease in mm. Australia and not a very nice one. We don't think a virus triggers that off, although it has been proposed that there might be a virus, funnily enough, another papillomavirus at the root of skin cancer. But I think it's much more likely that most of the cause of skin cancer is is damage from the sun clearly in the ultraviolet that damages your own genetic information and then there are the next part of it is whether your body's defense against infection can fight the cancer appropriately and that's the bit i'm really interested in can we basically enhance the body's ability to fight off cancer using the immune system i should make it very clear when you said you were working on a a vaccine for herpes and i went yay that's just out of purely that's a purely scientific yay on my part i have no vested interest in any research that's going on in herpes. One, one final question in closing up, Ian. Um, I mean, you, you had two amazing parents who were research scientists and clearly a gift for it yourself that was harnessed at a young age. I'm sure most parents of young kids would love their kids to be drawn to science. If they're not lucky enough to be research scientists themselves, what's your tip for getting kids from a young age drawn to science and inspired by the magic of it? Look, the whole thing about science is that we live in the in science, the whole world works because of the rules of which we call science. And I think that it's building on the natural curiosity of kids to find out how the world works that makes kids into scientists. We should all be scientists, really. We should all respect the fact that we learn from looking around us and make use of that knowledge to help us live better lives. 
we should all be scientists, but realistically, Ian, some of us are going to be a little bit better than others. And you're at the absolute top of that pile, my friend. Thank you so much for giving us some of your valuable time to answer some big questions today. Professor Ian Fraser. Thank you very much for your time, Alex. I think it's obvious not only is Professor Ian Fraser a genius, he's also a remarkably modest man. I wanted to drill a bit deeper into the effect that Gardasil's having at the coalface. So I'm going to chat briefly now with a professor in public health from the Cancer Council of New South Wales, Professor Karen Canfield. Thanks for joining us on The Big Questions, Karen. Thanks, Adam. In terms of the impact of Gardasil, are we seeing numerically now the effect it's having in the reduction of rates of things like cervical cancer, or are they the sort of things that will take time for us to fully appreciate? Yeah, that's a great question. What we're seeing is the early markers, the impact on the early markers of risk of cervical cancer. So what we've seen in the Australian context is a radical drop in HPV infections for the types that are included in the vaccine in young women. And we've also seen a drop actually in young boys. And we're seeing now a drop in cervical precancerous abnormalities. But I think the key thing to keep in mind is it is going to take a couple of decades at least for the maximal impact of the vaccine to be manifest because cervical cancer peaks in women in their 40s and 50s. So it will take a while to have a big impact on cancer. Yeah, Professor Fraser explained this to us. If it's the sort of thing that women often don't acquire until, say, 28 or 34, but you're having the vaccine when you're 14, it's another 20 years before you won't show up in the statistics we would have otherwise expected to see. Is that the way I should be thinking? That's exactly the way you should be thinking. I think what we are setting up to do is detect some initial impacts on invasive cervical cancer in women in their 30s and 40s, but we do expect that peak effect to come a bit later. And that's why the other major mechanism of preventing against HPV disease, which is cervical cancer screening, is so important for all women. Have the breakthroughs that Ian's made in understanding the virus and the potential for a vaccine affected areas outside of just treating people, just vaccinating them? Yeah, absolutely. So what's really exciting is that we're now seeing successive waves of innovations essentially in public health, which have been prompted by the impact of the vaccine. So the the National HPV Vaccination Program in Australia was introduced a decade ago now, Mm. and it's already had those early effects that I was talking about on infections and precancerous abnormalities. And that's now prompted changes that are coming in this year to cervical screening, which will now be moving to a system where we're actually testing for the virus itself as well. And that's all been prompted by the impact of the vaccine. So there's several waves of innovation, if you like, that have been happening since we introduced HPV vaccination. And the important thing for people to understand there, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying there is that when it comes to these new things about screening, what you're doing in screening now isn't using the knowledge that Ian and his colleagues created in understanding the virus, but because they have created the ability to vaccinate, it's now worth prioritising screening more and doing other things that there would have been no point doing if it wasn't for the vaccine. So yeah, you, that's why is that why you use the phrase, phrase a sort of ripple effect? Yeah, it's a it's a really linked discovery. So that so the key insight that's behind both the vaccine and the new screening approach is the the insight that HPV 
causes almost all cervical cancers. So that's led to Ian's work on the vaccine, but it's also led to better ways of screening. And I think the key thing is in terms of the vaccination program, it's radically reduced that lifetime risk of ever developing cervical cancer in young women. And that's meant that we've wanted to redesign the screening program so that it operates in a more integrated way with the vaccination program and mm. it gives better protection both to older unvaccinated women and to those younger cohorts who've been offered vaccination. In, in a country like Australia, how, how good could this get? My daughters are 12 and 9. Will they grow into an adulthood where no women have cervical cancer? So we're already starting to think about when might be the potential for eradicating HPV disease. and if it, Actually eradicate, actually it, it does not happen in Australia anymore. Well, I think that's something that we can anticipate and plan for, but it is going to take time. It's going to take decades. Um, I think the good news is that it will happen in Australia, I think, before anywhere else in the world. Why is that, Karen? Because we've been so successful at delivering and implementing an an HPV vaccination program and because we're now moving to best practice HPV-based screening. Hmm. So we're really leading the world in both of these areas and I think we're setting an example for countries globally. In fact. And when you, when you say it might take decades and some people might think, well, that's a long time, but when I was at university, one of my lecturers had survived polio as a child and it was not unusual for men and women of his age to know people who'd had polio. That These days in Australia, that's simply doesn't happen anymore. So while a couple of decades might seem a long time, we are talking a phenomenal change. If we eradicate or statistically extremely close to zero, remove the prevalence of a disease. It's, it is phenomenal. I mean, this is almost unprecedented, I would say, the potential here. Um, and so what we, I think, are really talking about is a few decades where it's the need to integrate vaccination of younger cohorts with good screening of women when they're older. And that will really give women in Australia a very, very low risk of developing cervical cancer. Um, but I think then the challenge in the public health terms is to translate that success that we, you know, we're already um, experiencing in Australia into low and middle income countries. Because it's one thing to eradicate a disease in a country that has universal health care and first class hospital systems and good quality internet where people can realise by an email they've missed out on there, they should go and have a check up and things like that. It's another thing altogether in a developing African nation. What I like to say is that we are actually at the point where at the very beginning of the implementation challenge with these technologies of HPV vaccination and HPV screening, and we've got the technologies, but we've got to figure out how to deliver them effectively in the developing world. Um, unfortunately, you know, we've, uh, we've got less than 3% coverage of the vaccine for the target population mm. in developing countries. So there's a really, really long way to go in terms of eradicating disease. Is that a cost thing? Is there no infrastructure through which to deliver? What are the main impediments? So it's a combination of factors. Um, there's really good and concerted efforts being driven by Gavi, which is the Global Vaccine Alliance, which is a public-private partnership set up to develop and implement vaccine programs globally. And a tongue twister within itself, the old public-private partnership. <laughs> it yes. is a, a tongue twister, yes. So there are really good efforts, but it is an enormous task, obviously, and it requires political will in, in the countries in which we're working. And I think one of the, um, the things that Australia can really play a role in here is really getting out there and telling the success story of what we've achieved in our program, mm. but also working very hard to translate the the implementation side 
in a way that will be implementable in the developing world. So one example of that is our new HPV-based screening program will involve testing a woman maybe 10 times in her lifetime. Mm -hmm. In developing countries, the focus will be on getting to women at least once or maybe twice, and that will immediately cut their risk drastically. What's really important and the message we're trying to get out there to governments and health ministries is that HPV vaccination is actually on the World Bank's list of the most important best buys for cancer control. Why is that? What's the bang for the buck, so to speak, in that field? Well, the bang for the buck is that it's very, very cost effective because cervical cancer and other HPV based cancers are very common um, and they're hugely prevalent in the developing world. They're really an important health problem. They're a problem not only for women, but obviously there's knock-on effects for their families and societies. So it really is very, very cost effective to get out there and prevent these cancers and we have the way to do it. Are we at the point yet where new technologies can help us? I, I saw a couple of years ago at an event by Microsoft, an Australian team of university students had invented an app and device where with a smartphone, someone just by breathing and coughing into the smartphone could be diagnosed with tuberculosis. And the idea is out in the field, people with dozens of smartphones, costs a lot less than building hospitals. You get out there with the smartphones and tests tens of thousands of people. The small percentage who then need emergency care can be directed to the one decent hospital you might have in a country or a large area. Are we at the point yet with screening and testing where devices and technology is, is our friend or is that still a way away? Well, I think that's where all the efforts are. It's really about translating this technology in that sort of a way. So, for example, developing good point-of-care HPV tests that can be delivered in that kind of mobile application can be delivered with women sampling themselves and then just rapidly testing and referring only those women who need it into the clinic. That's the kind of system that would work. And on the vaccine side, I think the efforts there are really around getting towards reduced dose schedules because at the moment in the Australian program, you need to deliver three doses for full protection. Mm. What we're looking for in terms of implementable strategies in the developing world is uh, two doses or maybe in the future even one dose so we can really get out there and protect people very very much more simply. Do you allow yourself occasionally to, to dream in your most optimistic moments of a world where there, you know, like like smallpox, uh, there, there, there is just no cervical cancer anymore, no HPV? That's definitely the dream. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's what we're all aiming for because unfortunately if we can't get out there and implement this amazing technology, we know that population growth and ageing in the developing world is just going to increase the burden of disease. I mean, we're already talking about 600,000 cases of cervical cancer every year. That's going to grow to a million over the next few decades per year. And so that's what we can be talking about preventing, but it's about how, how do we implement these preventative strategies now. When I dream that little dream, I for one, I'm happy to know that you're at the forefront of the fight. Lovely to meet you, Professor. Lovely to meet you, Adam. Professor Karen Canfield there from the Cancer Council of New South Wales, and before that, the incredible Ian Fraser. What really strikes me about Ian's work is this. He wasn't looking for a vaccine when he set out. He simply wanted to understand the structure of HPV. And this is an important point. Some of the work that happens in our universities, our labs, has to be thought 
for the sake of thought. You sometimes hear it called blue sky research. Yes, indeed, universities should collaborate with businesses. Some of the work that people do should be aimed at solving real world problems and producing immediate economic benefit. But we owe it to ourselves to let some of the most brilliant amongst us occasionally just sit there and think. Who knows where it may lead? Sometimes it saves tens of millions of lives. This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One Studios. Executive producer Jamie Show, series producer Caroline Pegram, and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more Big Questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon. Big Questions.